the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now, and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, seat of wisdom, pray for us. In the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Welcome, my dear brethren, to uh, the next part of our talks on the liturgical spirituality of uh, Dom Gerard. This is actually um, part five of our talks. So this is part five. And we're going to look at, um, in a sense, uh, the beginning of the spiritual theology of the liturgy, Conte Don Gerard, looking at the temporal creation, uh, connected with the theology of images, liturgy and the universe, prayer and poetry. And then we'll look at the approach to the heavenly temple, the heavenly sacrifice and the angels in our midst. Tom Gerard, in his conference on the Temple of Creation, begins with a quotation from St. Luke's Gospel, uh, the first chapter, verse 44. For behold, as soon as the voice of thy salutation sounded in my ears, the infant in my womb leapt for joy. Of course, that is the greeting of St. Elizabeth to the Immaculate Mother of God, who visited a, a St. Elizabeth and was carrying in a womb the word incarnate, Jesus Christ, our Saviour. So let us begin the conference in the Temple of Creation. Three unceasing miracles are found in the garden of the Bride of Christ. The wisdom of her doctors, the heroism of her saints, and the splendour of her liturgy. Et tres unum sunt, and these three. We see things are one, et tres unum sunt, because the liturgy is itself a song of wisdom and of love. It brings together the two orders of intelligence and love and directs them upwards in prayer. It's not surprising then that when we see and hear the church's liturgy, be it the chanting of the, the office or administration of the sacraments, we see in it the, the secret of our desire and we feel that leaping for joy in our whole being that St John the Baptist felt at Mary's salutation. You can read the rest of that, that uh, sort of introductory section in the Sacred Liturgy book. Then a little bit later, he goes on, Don Gerard goes on to talk about the temple of creation. He says, For some years now, the splendid scholarly study of the writings of the fathers of the church has allowed us to understand better how even the least important ceremony contracts the span of time and gathers into itself the whole history of salvation. Genesis, Exodus, the books of the prophets, all culminating in the mystery which is Christ. Even a minor ceremony will announce and make present the kingdom of God, once and for all fulfilled, whom God will be all in all. You can see here the priest who joins this loving <clears throat> an index finger, and he does that. Um, of course, when he was a sacred host, um, has any contact with the host, um, you know, after the consecration, the fingers remain like so, so that they don't touch anything profane. It's, it points towards that the priest, when holding the sacred his hand, holds Jesus Christ, true God and true man, the creator of heaven and death, the creator of the universe. So that small gesture uh, speaks volumes about the Holy Eucharist, about the Mass, 
reading the fathers, especially St. Clement of Alexandria, St. Maximus and St. Augustine, one says Dom Gerard cannot help but notice how far the liturgy of the church keeps time with the rhythm of the universe, the created universe itself being a, a temple of praise within which an endless universe unfolds. These great fathers of the church were concerned uh, not only with the Twelve Articles of the Creed, they teach us also to look at the world itself with the eyes of faith as the shining garment of Almighty God himself and to look at the succession of the days as the unrolling of a sacred pageant. Is there not perhaps in our created universe a vast liturgical action sketched out for us, a strange theatre of sounds and signs waiting for man, perhaps to give it some fully formed significance? Perhaps one day we see in the unbelievable abundance of natural forms uh, and rhythms in all the different realms of the universe in their hierarchic order beginning deep in matter and rising to where the spirit is enthroned. Perhaps when we see here St. Paul's tense expectation of the whole of creation groaning in the labour of birth. It is almost as though this great Teatro Mundi, theatre of the world, awaits one who will lead its chorus of praise. For St. Maximus, the universe was like a cosmic church, where the nave was a sensible world and the choir the spiritual world. St. Augustine had the same ample thought. Universi secure pulcritudo verut manium carmen ineffabilis modulatoris. The beauty of the whole of creation is like a great poem created by some incomparable master as he says in his commentary on the Psalms. So let's follow him, in this train of thought. The beauty of the whole of creation is a great poem created by some incomparable master. So we're starting out very much about creation, that creation is, is praise of God. Um, and certainly that this is an idea uh, the liturgy, that uh, creation is like liturgy or, or our liturgy of praise of God is an idea in the church fathers. Now we look at, look at the theology of images, the animal and vegetable kingdoms with an abundance of different life forms, the alternation of the seasons, the rhythms of the hours marked by the sun, the exact circling of the stars, all of this makes up a silent, expectant liturgy. It is an image that pleases God because his mark is upon it, the light of his world. The world, the world is full of the traces and likenesses of God. The creation is an image of the Creator, an innocent image, not tarnished, but not yet glorified. How can one not see the light of the sun is as new a, th a thing this day as when its rays first shone upon the surface of the earth in the dawn of creation? How can one not see that the air we breathe is as virginal a thing as that full breath of air breathed in by the first man as he awoke to life? This new changing newness of created things in their pristine purity is of the great miracle of existence. So we've seen here a very kind of cosmic um, view of liturgy here, that creation itself um, praises God. And indeed, as um, Dom Gerard then says, that few human beings are aware of it. But nevertheless, with the exception of the supernatural order of things, it is the most lucid expression of the, of the divine within the created universe. He's talking here about the, the changing newness of created things. And it is 
This that allows us to take seriously the Augustinian idea of the world as a poem written by God. God the Creator. We find there's a beautiful slide, illuminated manuscript of the beginning of the prologue of St John's Gospel. In principio era verbum. In the beginning was the word. And indeed, as Don Gerard says, and we find in the prologue of St John's Gospel a phrase that explains very well God's giving of light to his creation. St Augustine, in fact, punctuates the text in a way that emphasises the significance of this act. Here are St John's words as we find them in the Missal. Omnia per ipsum factus sunt, et sine ipso factus nihil quod factum est. In ipso vite erat, vite erat lux homine. All things were made by him, that is God, and without him was made nothing that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Here is the punctuation, says Dom Gerard, adopted by St. Augustine. We know that in the original manuscripts there is no punctuation, he, he, he notes. Omnia per ipsum facta sunt, et sine ipsu facta is nikio. All things were made by him, and without him was nothing that was made. Then a new sentence. Quod factum est in ipso vita erat. In him is life, and there was life. We may translate, all things were made by him, and without him was nothing made. What was made in him was life. In St. Augustine's commentary, says Dom Gerard, on this text, we find an idea of great beauty and nobility. Everything that lives has life, because it is held unceasingly in the mind of God, no matter how more or less humble its terrestrial state. Then we have a, a long quotation, actually, from the tract on, on St. John. I think it's chapter 1, number 17. And St. Augustine writes here, as well as I can, here is how I would explain the matter. A joiner makes a cabinet. He begins by having the cabinet as an idea in his mind. Let me um, just explain a little bit about that. Um, it's important to know a little bit about the Latin that St. Augustine uses here. This is a point picked up by Dom Gerard. A joiner makes the cabinet, faber facit arcum, cabinet. The cabinet, it begins by having the cabinet as an idea in his mind, in arte. The cabinet, of course, does not exist in his mind in the same way that it exists when it becomes visible to the eye. In the idea, as in his mind, the idea of cabinet, it exists invisibly. Once made, he exists visibly. You can actually see it. So now the cabinet has been made. Does it, for that reason, cease to exist in the idea? Now let us make a distinction, says Augustine. The cabinet, as it exists in reality, is not a living thing. But in the idea, it is a living thing. Because the soul of the workman is living, and that living soul has encompassed the whole of the work to be done before producing it in the outside world. In the same way, my dear brethren, says Augustine, the wisdom of God, by which all things were made, encompassed within itself the idea of all those beings before creating them. You see the earth. Well, there's also an earth in God's idea of it. You see the sun and the moon. Well, they too exist as ideas. But in their external reality, they are inanimate bodies, whereas in the divine ideas of them, they live in arte vita sunt. So it's talking about in the mind of God. Sometimes we say in the mind of the Creator, we say you were in the mind of the Creator before you were born. 
God thought about you, God could see you through all eternity, and he thought about creating an individual planet or whatever. Dom Gerard says, remember that the expression in arte, used here in the, as an idea in his mind, the arse is the act of execution, the guiding idea. St. Bonaventure, great Franciscan doctor of the church, is thinking in Augustinian terms when he says that the word is the art, the arse of the Father. This is as much as to say that the created universe is a thought in act, a signature, a concrete realised image emanating from the divine thought. This is why when in his prologue St. John continues, it vita erat lux hominum. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The continuity is from him who links together life and light. What was made in him was life, and this life was the light of men. This is so much as to say that we are illumined by the same divine light which brought into visible being the Manum Carmen, the poem of creation, the work of an incomparable artist. And this light speaks to us of God. Illumine tuo videbimus lumen. In your light you shall see light. As the psalmist says in Psalm 35. In your light, that is to say, that creative light which Dennis the Areopagite calls autocalopios, of itself productive of all beauty, and which St. Augustine calls wisdom of art. Here's an image there of some of the fathers uh, of the church, in case you're wondering what that is. It is in this divine light, and in this alone, says Dom Jura, that we are able to see the true reality of created things the sacred chant of their being and the mystery of their vocation. How should we not see in this great work of creation its harmony ever new and fresh, a kind of natural song of praise, a cosmic liturgy rising up to God? This idea, which was later to come to fruition in Franciscan theology, I may interject here, um, Certainly in St. Bonaventure, if you look at his work, uh, The Journey of the Soul to God, Interanarium Mentis in Deum, you see how he journeys, you journey through creation, we look at as a creation of the messages of, of God in the universe, and through creation we journey to God. It raises our hearts and our minds to God. So again, Dom, uh, Dom Gerard says this idea the cosmic liturgy rising up to God of creation, this great work of creation, the circumferation in the Franciscan theology. Um, and it seems to accord with all that is almost essentially Catholic, he says. Its doctrinal roots are found in the Greek fathers, the Greek fathers here, illustrated, for whom there was no created good, even natural good, which is not to be conceived of as a reflection of a participation in the light of the word. Mimesis, that's imitation, and metexis, participation, was encountered constantly in the writings. It's quite a difficult, uh, these, some of these concepts are, are quite difficult to, to grasp, but I do recommend you read. Um, it's um, the, the book actually. Um, God is regarded as the sovereign Lord and the greatest good. Of course, God made creation, uh, as it says in Genesis, and saw that it was good. Um, he had the idea in his mind of creation from all eternity, I suppose. God thought about, you know, um, making the universe, making the earth. Um, this great act of praise, this great poem, as Augustine says. And indeed, um, these thoughts of reflection that, or that um, the natural good, which is not to be conceived of as a reflection of 
and participation in the light of the world. It is in this spirit that we should read the great work of Dennis the Areopagite called the Celestial Hierarchy. Dennis's whole doctrine can be summed up in three key words, says Dom Gerard. Image, outpouring, participation. According to him, everything comes to us by means of the illumination of the principal light, Archiphotos, which descends with loving kindness and in many different ways towards the objects of its providence to draw us back to the one as God, back to the radical, deifying simplicity of the Father who is all in all. In this descent of light and in the ascending reflux of beings illuminated and placed in the hierarchical order by the word, splendour of the Father, the whole universe climbs towards its central principle in an awesome celebration in which the human creature also finds its part. We ourselves, says St. Maximus the Confessor, in the unfolding pageant of our pleasant lives are first engendered like any other earthly animal, then we become children, then we are carried along from infancy to the wrinkled skin of age, like a flower that lasts an instant of time, then dying to and last pass into another life. We are truly to be called a game played by God, Mr. Goggy. Mr. Goggy. We find the same idea, says Dom Gerard in St. Clement of Alexandria. We can see in all these things how important the fathers are to monastic spirituality and thought and and, and um, in connection with, this, with the, the study of the sacred liturgy, which we also saw in to Joseph Ratzinger and, and his theology of liturgy. Um, so we've got the same idea in St. Clement of Alexandria, for whom the word, that is God, Jesus, is essentially he who has ordered all things by measure having brought the dissonance of separate elements to the discipline of a court, to make the world from self a sim single symphony of sound, a prodeptikos in Greek. But the symphony, um, comprised of sin and by the fall of man, is in its turn grasped and purified by the great sweeping movement of the redemptive action of the Son of God, the incarnate word is not only king of the nations of the earth, he is sovereignty over the whole universe and creation itself acquires a new dignity from the moment the earth is made literally his false stool, scabellum pedentuorum, and from the moment when the stream of blood and the crucified Christ bathes it in the river of his love. The famous Passion Hymn puts it memorably, Mete corpus preferatum, preferatum sanguis under profluid, terra pontus astra mundus, flumine. The tender body is pierced, blood and water flow out, and water stream, our earth, sea, stars and world washed clean. A universe in time with, uh, with the liturgy in tune with the universe. That's the next um, section. And then we're going to look at a little bit about liturgy and the times and the seasons, which you see illustrated here. There's a lovely illustration of the ecclesiastical year. It's actually the it's highlighting in this particular illustration the season of the nativity or Advent, Christmas. The circumcision that's from January the first, the octave day of Christmas, and then on to the Epiphany. So, liturgy in tune with the universe. Dom Gerard says that it will hardly seem surprising in light of the, this doctrine, which is just explained to us, that the celebration of the Christian liturgy um, taking place as it does within our churches but in tune with the rhythms of the universe beyond has more life uh, breath and more vigour the more it derives the natural elements of its poetry and the sacraments from the blind and luminous world that surrounds it. 
the liturgical cycle of the church illustrated here keep step with the changing of the seasons in their yearly round as they form a crown of blessings in the words of psalm 64 from the bounteous hand of god let us see how the liturgical round keeps step with the cycle of the seasons christmas illustrated here in particular in color Christmas, the mystery of the royal birth of the Son of God, corresponds to the winter solstice, which is the point at which the sun begins its victorious march in the movement of steady growth and the darkness retreating at the advance of light. Easter, on the other hand, corresponds to the new growth of spring. It is well described in a beautiful hymn, Salva Vesta Dies. The beauty of the reborn world bears witness that the whole of creation comes back to life with its Lord. After a melancholy sojourn in the underworld, everywhere the woods are bursting into leaf and the fields are blossoming with flowers. And so the church says Dom Gera, successor to the first ages of mankind, when the pact was sealed between man and the created world, has not expelled from her heart the old pagan loves. That's interesting, isn't it? Um, we're not talking here about a, not talking here about a sort of uh, adapting pagan idols or anything like that, but you know, love of nature and of creation, but to 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 view it uh, in a, with, with Christian spectacles. Let's put it that way. The church has not lost the savour of earth and sun. She, is, she, she has only purified them. That's the important point. And she's purified her alliance with Ceres and Demeter, goddesses of the harvest and of the fruitful fields, by using bread, wine and oil in the confection of her sacraments. And so she structures her divine office to follow the movements of the sun in the sky. Fascinating. Remember, I think I mentioned a few talks ago um, that the bravery uh, until, I don't know, maybe the, the late 50s, uh, many editions of the bravery were divided into four volumes. It's worth repeating that again, actually. The winter volume, which encompassed Advent and Epiphany and Christmas. And then you had the spring volume, which was the beginning of Lent, from the first Sunday of Lent, actually, until the end of uh, the octave of Pentecost, then the summer bravery, which we now use, which takes us all the way into September, and then, of course, the autumn part, which includes autumn, takes us right up until before Advent. There's a section here on uh, prayer and poetry. On each day of the week at Vespers, says Dom Gerard, the hymns of the Roman bravery tell of a phase in the history of creation, where the Lord's hymns sing of the light of day, dissipating the darkness of night. With consummate art, says Dom Gerard, the liturgy takes us from the plane of created light to that of eternal light. Another idea we've encountered before in his, in, when he was talking to the novices about the collect of the Christmas Midnight Mass. Worth looking that up again, actually. Each morning, says Dom Gerard, the dawn puts darkness to flight. As Christ, the light of the world, puts to flight the darkness of sin. The poetry of the liturgy sheds the light of hope upon everyday life with an undreamed of freshness of invention. So it is with a famous hymn for the Sundays of winter, where each stanza begins with the crowing of the cock. And here's a translation at cock crow hope is born again. The sick take heart again for life. The sailor feels new courage in the storm. The brigand sheaths his sword. The chanting of the Psalms, which forms the main framework of liturgical prayer, ripples with images that make up a body of poetry of powerful and primal energy 
that would be difficult to match elsewhere. This is how the psalmist speaks of God. And um, this is from Psalms 103, 143, 76, and the Canticle of uh, Daniel. The Lord is clothed with light as with a cloak. He touches the mountains and the smoke. He is seen in the thunder and he marches on the wings of the wind. He wakes like a warrior overcome with wine. Before him the rivers clap their hands. The hills exult, they leap like rams, and the small hills like lambs. There is always an image, says um, Domgera, or a resonant word which can catch and feed one's imagination. How true that is. The liturgy of the church is not just in tune with natural time. It redeems time. Immersed with joy in the great flood of creatures, from which it derives its abundance of images, the liturgy transfigures this created order and prepares it for its ultimate transformation. From wine, the natural drink that makes glad the heart of man, the church makes a royal vintage that envelops the world in its purple, rehabilitates it and consecrates it with an even more solemn consecration than that of the first day of creation. Uh, it's interesting that to use the image of wine to show how you know man rejoices and is revived by a glass of wine and in the same way um, it's used as an image of God rehabilitating creation. Um, I'm going to say only a Frenchman would probably think of that. Louis Villon the famous uh, French Catholic writer um, is cited now by Dom Gérard and he once wrote these words on the occasion of the consecration of a church. So quotation from Lillo. Oil, water, wine, fire, ashes, salt, wax, hyssop, gold, silver, stone, lime, sand, all belong to the church and she makes sovereign use of them. The church comes to make all well, to save all things, to unite them together. Sin has destroyed the harmony between God and man, and between man and the created world. And Vilo, it says, Don Jurel rightly concludes that paganism sullied the natural order, Protestantism rejects it, the church consecrates it. That's from Le Parfum de Rome. The writing of the consecration or dedication of a church, and this is the, the dedication of the church, of the Abbey Church at Les Barreaux, very impressive ceremony, um, is the most indeed sumptuous of all the liturgical ceremonies, full of the most splendid lyrical incantations. Two prayers in particular express the mystery of the cosmic order illuminated by the divine presence. Here is the prayer of the blessing of the lime and the sand. Unfortunately, I can't go into um, all the gestures of the, the, the mass of dedication. But, um, so let's just take those prayers. Almighty God, you who can serve all things, high and low, in the scale of being, you who encompass all creatures, and who are found at the centre of their being, sanctify this lime and this sand which you have created. And the great preface sung outside the church at the main door is in the same terms. O holy and blessed Trinity, purifying all, cleansing all, beautifying all things. O blessed majesty of God, filling all, encompassing all, disposing of all things. O hand of God, holy and blessed, which sanctifies and enriches all things. Interesting, isn't it? That well, Joseph Ratzinger talks about the use of water, wine and various things, uh, natural things, which the church consecrates, in the words of that uh, French uh, writer. 
The church, says Dom Gerard, consecrates the world in order to offer it to God. And in the act of offering it, she sanctifies and divinizes it. And from where does the power of the liturgy over our universe come, if not from a profound complicity with the world of signs and symbols? It is the whole art of the liturgy to make a reality of the wish once expressed by Charles Béquis, that a holiness should arise from the earth. The liturgy directs uh, up to God the song of his creatures. It has within it just what is needed of the earth to make it possible to translate the realities of heaven into image and symbol. Among the jewels offered to the bride of Christ by the sweet kingdom of earth, there's poetry, a presence in the liturgy of something deriving from the secular world, rather as the Israelites brought with them to the promised land something of the treasures of Egypt. It is no small matter that the liturgy brings with it something of the treasures of earth that in some way renders into human language the inexpressible groaning of the Spirit of God, which is the ground of all prayer, blended with the numberless voices of creation. A famous French poet in a poem called uh, The Beacons, where uh, the poet speaks about the creative energy of art through the ages, celebrates the co this constant murmuring of art and poetry arising in the liturgy to God. For it is truly, O Lord, the best witness to our own human dignity, this quiet ardour of sound arising age after age, to die away at the very edge of your eternity. Then we proceed on to the next corpus, which is the approach to the heavenly light. We who like the Ephesians, says Dom Gerard, to whom St Paul wrote in the year 60 or 60 AD, are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens of the saints. We desire more than all the treasures of the earth, the grace which the Church pours out upon her children when she raises them from temporal things to give them a foretaste of the joys of eternity. The stream of the liturgy, and this is its merit, gathers up the treasures of the earth and flows with them into the great ocean of divine life. At the threshold of the sanctuary, the images and signs derived from temporal things cease. What passes into the sanctuary is the human soul and the naked act of prayer, allowing the signs to pass away so that it should be filled with the fullness of God. As we read in the Apocalypse, the elect shall need no lamps, because the Lord himself is their light. This is, he says then, if we ask how it is that those who take their part in the drama of the liturgy are led along the path to their homeland, and to what degree they can approach the beauty that is beyond speech. That's a quotation from St. Angelo Foligno. Then we must answer that the outward way has about it a double aspect. Creation itself furnishes us with an abundance of images and symbols, and these go to make up the way, but there must also be a, a sense of a goal to be pursued, that actual desire to pass into the heavenly kingdom. One can say without fear of error that liturgical life fully realised is deeply submerged in a universe of figures and symbols, which at one and the same time remind us that we are in exile and tell us of the mystery which makes us citizens of the city of God. And so, says Don Gerard, we are invited to be attentive to the patterning of signs speaking to us from beyond our world. And the clearest and most important of these the sign which tells us we have crossed the threshold of the eternal kingdom is that of joy.
So we talk, then Don Gerard talks about the coming of joy. What really is it, the liturgy, he asks. He goes back to like looking at the sort of definition of liturgy. That is a question that Charlemagne uh, asked one day of Alcuin, his advisor and confidant. Alcuin's answer was that the liturgy is the joy of God. It's another interesting definition of liturgy. We could go further and say that it is the joy of God together with the joy of the whole creation. One is reminded in the words of the Exultate on Easter night, and here's an ancient, uh, very old uh, Exultate role, that, that the angelic choirs of heaven now rejoice, that the earth also rejoice, illumined with such resplendent rays. I just want to sit on about this picture. You see the deacon um, is chanting the exultant before the, the paschal candle. It's a chant of blessing. You see the paschal candle there in its holder. You see, I think, another deacon holding a thurible. And we see over the lectern, over the sort of pulpitum in which the deacon is standing, you know, the long um, paschal roll. The preface, says Dom Gerard, of the Mass of Pentecost, as well evokes the joy of the created world at the descent of the Holy Ghost upon the Apostles. Wherefore does the whole world rejoice with exceeding great joy, says the preface. In the same way the Sanctus of the Mass describes a universe filled to overflowing by a tide of divine glory. Heaven and earth are full of your glory. And other texts, uh, Dom Gerard points out from Pascotite, in him the heavens and earth rise again to life. In your resurrection, O Christ, heaven and earth rejoice. Alleluia. This joy, which is according to its degree, an echo or a foretaste of the joy of heaven, is expressed liturgically in lyrical terms by chanting lights, white vestments and processions and um, Don Gerard goes on to talk about these things chanting lights white vestments processions so he goes on first of all talk about chant the chant of the church we call Gregorian says Don Gerard is an echo of the chant arising in the heavenly Jerusalem at Mass and during the office, the chant is not an optional extra simply to embellish the act of worship. Do you remember Gilbert Sullivan, the composers of opera? Um, I think one said that this, this, the music was more important than the words. Another said that the, the words were more important than the music. But here, the words in the liturgy are important, but the chant as well. It, it's not, as Dom Gerard explains, as a sort of decoration. Um, he says that, on the contrary, it's an essential part of Catholic worship because worship on earth is an imitation of that worship in heaven, which is a chant of grace and of praise. Isn't that interesting? <clears throat> the um, Eastern Fathers, of course, Western Fathers, the Eastern Liturgy too, has a very strong tradition of pointing towards liturgy, um, so as a mirror image of the liturgy in heaven and we have that in the western rite too of course that there is clearly also in our tradition um, in heaven says Dom Gerard it I worship it is the great panegyric of the apocalypse where the choirs of the elect and of the angels stand about the throne of God, singing Amen and Alleluia. Amen, and so all is well. Alleluia, and may God be praised. These, as St. Augustine tells us, are the two cries of eternity. Amen, Alleluia. It was only in the 12th century, says Don Gerard, that, in, that the practice of St. Low Mass became at all common. We might actually find it a bit earlier than that, but let's leave that aside. He then says that until then, the celebration of the divine mysteries, and this was the way the Mass was celebrated, was always accompanied 
by chanting incense because the oblation is at one and the same time a making present of the cross and the participation in the liturgy paradise. And he says the Gregorian chant expresses this reality better than all the other chants of earth because it takes us with it into a, a temporal world which excludes or merely naturalistic modes of expression. And I'm sure you know, my dear Breton, that the church extols uh, in the first place the use of Gregorian chant, which has grown in its bosom, which has even origin stretching right back to the chants of the ancient Jews. Even during Holy Week, says Dom Girard, the intensity of supplication and of grief does not interrupt the serenity of a chant which derives from a point beyond grief. The same is true of the splendid chant of the Orthodox, but with a note of joy about it which belongs only to Gregorian chant. Then he continues, the music of the Renaissance, to be sure, was lit up with the fire of a new and incontestable beauty, but it is not the proper chant of the Latin Church. Neither can the bread of Christ recognise herself in the sounds of a more modern and expressionistic music, sensuous, emotional, indeed sentimental. Negro spirituals breathe an air of sadness and melancholy, and we seem to hear in the syncopated rhythm the sound of the chains that bound the black singers of Louisiana. But in this form of religious expression, there is lacking the light of Easter, the joy of heaven, the glorious freedom of the sons of God, taken over into the kingdom of his love. Thus writes uh, Dom Gerard. It's very interesting how the, the music of, of, of uh, the Negro spirituals it expresses a musical form, what they were suffering within. And all it's of good music is that... Um, and the range of Gregorian chant expresses all sorts of things, grief at the time of the Passion and Holy Week and great joy as we um, encounter during the liturgy of Easter. Now, Dom Girard moves on to discuss white clothing. This is a rather nice, old, very old, medieval uh, Italian alb. I'm not mistaken. White uh, clothing and the use of light reminds us too of the life of heaven. They are derived, says Dom Gerard, from the most ancient parts of the mosaic cult and probably from primitive elements of an even more uh, primal kind linked with a natural symbolism. In the time of the early church, uh, they had an essential role in the baptismal liturgy, during which the neophytes wore a white linen alb to symbolise the fact that put on Christ, they received a lighted candle that marked them out as children of light. Yesterday you were darkness, now you are light in the Lord, walk as sons of light. These two ritual acts, accompanied by the final injunctions, from the last part of our present baptismal rite. That's an interesting thought. That you studied the beautiful rites of baptism of the Catholic Church, that their origins go right back to earliest Christianities, uh, Christianity. They have come, and uh, indeed, Dom Gerard says, they have come down to us as witnesses to a theology of clothing and of light that gave expression to joy. Then he goes on to talk about the processional element in the liturgy. He says it's always expressive of the march of redeemed humanity towards the sanctuary of heaven. The church, of course, he says, is itself the image of paradise. This can be seen in the architecture of our temples of stone. The great doors of our cathedrals adorned with, with sculpture Representing the elect mark the point of separation from the profane world 
and the entrance into the heavenly world. So note that next time you have the privilege of going into a Romanesque church with a beautiful uh, archway uh, over the main entrance. All liturgical processions finish at the sanctuary and, and imitate the upward movement of human life towards eternity. And this is the meaning suggested by the prayers which accompany the Candlemas and Palm Sunday processions and those found in the monastic customaries. In the ceremony of the dedication of a church, which we have in a photograph here, the dedication of the FSP seminary in America, and the dramatic character of the entrance into the sanctuary is further emphasised by the ritual action of the triple knocking on the closed door of the church. The bishop um, knocks three times with his crozier, which symbolises the cross at the door of the church, behind which the deacon and his acolytes represent the angels. And there's a solemn exchange of words. The bishop sings, Elevamine porte eternalis, be ye lifted up, O eternal gates, and the king of glory shall enter in. The deacon replies, Quis es iste rex gloriae? Who is the king of glory? The bishop, Dominus fortis et potens, Dominus potens, in prelio, the Lord is strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Who could not see here, says uh, Dom Gerard, as one might see a watermark on paper, the whole eschatology of salvation. Jesus Christ, the great high priest, victorious by the wood of the cross, enters into his heavenly temple to celebrate there, at the end of time, the eternal dedication. What is signified here is acted out by the participants in the liturgical drama. In the Byzantine rite of the Solemn Mass, and here, which was celebrated here by St. John the Twenty-Third, um, the gifts are carried in procession from the sacristy to the altar. The clergy representing the whole angelic hierarchy chants the Kerubikon, that is, we who in mystic terms represent the cherubim, and who in honour of the life-giving trinity sing the thrice holy hymn, set aside all worldly care in order to receive the King of all things, invisibly accompanied by all his legions of angels. Alleluia. Then he talks about the, the heavenly sacrifice. He said there's much been written on the idea of the heavenly sacrifice of Christ. And he says it's been greatly championed by some and what seemed extreme, and what seemed extreme about the idea has been strongly criticised by others. He says to the day agreement seems to have emerged based not on the notion of an everlasting spiritual act on the part of Christ, the priest in heaven, and he says, Holy Scripture indeed affirms, on the contrary, that Christ Jesus died once, but upon the notion of a permanent sacrificial state. Um, Christ, bearing the marks of his passion, appears in glory as a glorious victim of a completed act of sacrifice. And in reference to um, that Christ Jesus, our Saviour, died once, he quotes here from letters to Paul to the Romans and St. Peter, Christ, rising again from the dead, dies now no more, for in that he died to sin, he died once. Christ also died once for all sins. And for this sort of permanent sacrificial state, um, Christ bearing the marks of his passion appears in glory, as the glorious victim of a completed act of sacrifice, quotation from Apocalypse, I saw in the midst of the throne a lamb standing as it were slain. And he says, provided one sets aside the theory for sacrificial death reproducing itself in eternity, then the idea of the heavenly sacrifice remains a valuable one. And of course, lots of these things, as Dom Jura says, are 
we're under discussion or there seems to be some agreement. Um, so take it in that sense. But he says that in any case that, that the heavenly sacrifice remains a valuable idea and that Father de Condre, who has written a great deal on this subject, uh, has some illuminating insights. There's quite a long passage there. I'll just read a section of that passage actually. This great sacrifice offered by Jesus Christ with his saints to God in heaven, offering himself together with them, is the very same sacrifice offered on earth through the saints, by the priests, and the whole church, and the Holy Mass. But there is this difference, that the communion which the saints have with Christ in heaven is uninterrupted and eternal, whereas ours is only daily and temporal. Here on earth we are subject to the changes of the temporal order, and to the necessities of our present life. But in heaven, there is no span of time other than eternity, and no occupation other than the eternal sacrifice and communion. In heaven, in that place of joy and light, you shall have the same truth, but uncovered and unveiled. And the Dobjerad comments, how are we then to express the relation that exists between the Mass, the Cross, and the glorified Christ. One can see naturally in the words of the Council of Trent that the Mass is a sacra sacramental renewing in an unbloody fashion of the sacrifice of Calvary. So I'll just go back to the other illustration. You see that there. The court of heaven is present at every Mass. You see the Trinity, Father, Son and Holy Ghost, the priest raising the sacred host, which is the representation in an unbloody manner of the sacrifice of Calvary. But we must see too, says Don Gerard, that the Council of Trent affirmed this against the Protestants, who denied that the Mass was a true sacrifice and sacramental offering of a true victim. The Tridentine definition did not intend to overshadow that other aspect of the sacrifice which the Fathers of the Church explained so well, namely, that the Mass is in direct relationship with the liturgy which takes place in heaven. There is indeed an absolute identity between the host placed in the corporal and the heavenly Lamb, the Lord, the Kurios, uh, in glory. And I'm just going to go onward now to the next section, which is the angels in our midst. In the light of the above kind of commentary, says Don Gerard, we understand better the allusion to the presence of the angels in the Catholic rite. Already at the beginning of the Mass, it is in the presence of the whole court of heaven, as we've just seen with that, this illustration, and of St. Michael the Archangel, that the faithful confess and strike their breasts. The incensing of the altars likewise by the intercession of the archangel who stands at the right hand of the altar of incense from the Roman Missal. You see here our Lord dressed in, in eastern robes of, of an of a eastern uh, bishop, priest. You see the altar behind him. And you see the angels there carrying the incense and various uh, elements. Uh, uh, things which are used in the Eastern liturgy. It's absolutely fascinating uh, icon. Let's continue with the text. During the glory, the earthly community associates itself with the liturgy of the angels, praying in one voice with them, una voce. The phrase is profoundly significant and deserves thought, una voce, one voice. To chant together the Trisagion, the angelic hymn which excels all others. The supreme chant whereby the seraphim adore the thrice holy God who lives in an inaccessible light. According to St John Chrysostom, in the chanting of the Trisagion, the man has it were uh, himself transported to the heavens above. He takes a place close to the throne of glory he takes wing with the seraphim, he sings the sacred hymn. There is no shadow of hyperbole in that great doctor 
of the church's words. The Mass, says Dom Gerard, is a mystic adventure of incalculable import. Isn't that interesting? A mystical adventure of incalculable import. You should think about that, how wonderful the Mass is every time we attend the Mass. The mystery, says Dom Gerard, of the bloody cross is, as it were, represented with the tearing of the seamless robe of paradise. Jacob's dream becomes reality. The angels ascend and descend with their sympathetic presence, make sweeter our own participation in the austere sacrifice. When we approach our earthly altars, we set in motion a friendly and admiring response in the part of our invisible brothers in heaven. In the Tractatus Mysteriorum, St Andrews speaks of the light that, that then comes upon us. And he quotes from St Andrews now. You make, you make to approach the altar. The angels have their eyes upon you, and they see this. And they see that whereas before you were a, a wretched sight, and suddenly you are radiant with light. So now of my first thought, especially as a priest, as you're at the foot of the altar, you've said the prayers at the foot of the altar, and you're ready to ascend the, the altar steps to the altar. Um, but we're surrounded by the angels, in respect to and we're in the presence of the angels during the Holy Mass. Do you ever think of that? It'd be good to, as Don has done, look through the Order of Mass, see how many times the angels are mentioned in the Mass. Text continued. But it is our communion and Eucharistic sacrifice which will actually make real what the psalms, the lights and the symbols all signify. Sacramental communion does not only allow us to receive the body, blood, soul and divinity of the Lord. It also unites us in a kind of symbiosis with the cultic action of the beloved Son as it unfolds in the heavenly sanctuary. We are at one with Christ in his action as priest and victim. The knowledge of this leads to a cooperation on our part in an, an order of reality in which the boundaries between heaven and earth fade away. In the twelfth chapter of his epistle to the Romans, St Paul exhorts the faithful to offer their bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, pleasing unto him. Secret hostiam viventem, sanctam, deo placentem. Remember, we come across that quote before in Don Gerard's Spiritual Theology and also, of course, uh, in Joseph Ratzinger's Spiritual Theology. We have to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing unto God. The Apostles' Council, says Dom Gerard, finds its most perfect fulfilment in the very act of sacramental communion, which makes the communicant a player in a liturgy at once angelic, filial and celestial, under the loving gaze of God, his Father and Creator. And he says, we come now to the third part of our meditation on the liturgy. And then he goes on to discuss what we've seen before, actually, the relationship, to, the relationship between man and, and right. Um, so if you've not listened to those talks, that particular talk, uh, Man and Right, which is in two parts, uh, please do so. Um, so really, that's, we've covered now this book the, and gone through it, the spiritual, uh, the sacred liturgy rather, uh, the spiritual theology of Dom Gerard Calvé. And there's one more conference which I would like to look at to conclude this sort of, if you like, mini-series on the Tertical Spirituality of, of Dom Gerard, which is in the best monastic traditions, steeped in the scriptures and the Church Fathers. Um, as I said, I think in our first talk, the liturgy is something which the monk lives and breathes. Um, throughout the day and pours out into uh, the rest of the day, into his life. 
and also there's rich, rich, uh, ritual gestures in monastic life which um, feel like is the overflowing of liturgy and that life itself, the whole of life, becomes a liturgy of praise um, to Almighty God. So next time um, we'll come to a conclusion and we're going to look at the uh, what, what Dom Gerard called the four benefits of the liturgy and of course some of the things that we have seen in these talks already and on Dom Gerard's liturgical theology we will see again but I think it would be good to use this to sum up what we've already seen so we're going to look at next time the four benefits of the liturgy which that was given a conference paper for the very first CL conferences at Sont Internationale Liturgique. And we must now uh, conclude with a prayer. And I hope you found um, these particular talks of interest and give you an appetite and a great love for the sacred liturgy, that the sacred liturgy will transform your life, will bring you closer to God and that you can pray with the church in the very words used by the church. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen.